Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, I, I know I've shared part of this story with you before. I can't remember what part I've shared with you, but last year, early in the year, uh, my family was driving to Texas and I planned out a interesting route uh, because I wanted to take my family hiking in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. And so we spent the night in Branson, Missouri. And as we woke up uh, in the morning, my kids said, Dad, you know what? We, we really don't want to go hiking. We just want to make it down to Texas to see our aunt and cousins and stuff like that. And so I let them on a little secret. I said, hey, listen, um, this year is mom and dad's 20th anniversary. And so I'm surprising mom by taking her to the hike that we went on when I proposed to her. And so uh, we were driving through the Ozark Mountains and then we were descending down to the parking lot and you go down and down and down and down. It really is a mountain. And we go down and we make, finally make it down to the parking lot. And by this time, Trish has figured out what we're doing, but that's okay. It's still an awesome thing. And so we get out of the car and, uh, and I look on the map and there's no trail for what we are going to go do. It's an unmarked trail or an on. I don't know what's on unmaintained trail or something. It's, it's a trail that the, that, that's not illegal to go on, but the state park is not recommending you do it, okay? And so, so I'm like, okay, we're gonna go. This is gonna be wonderful. The kids are gonna be laughing with delight. They're gonna be ooing. They're gonna be on. It's gonna be spectacular. And so I actually have a couple pictures of it up here as we were going. This is my daughter, Carissa. There's waterfalls all along the way. You go up this creek and there's pools of water that you can swim in and rapids. You can see there's even tall cliffs there. Um, and then as we keep going, this is actually where I proposed to Trish. And so one side, there's this cave where a waterfall is coming out. And then on the other side, there's this canyon where water is coming down. And so, you know, I was thinking, hey, kids, you know, just follow me. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be wonderful. But if you've ever gone on a hike with kids, you know that uh, it's always harder than you anticipate it being. And to be fair to them, it was a very hard hike. At one point in time, uh, one of those steep walls, there was like this ledge that you kind of inched over and there was this rope that you, that you held onto as you inched across. And my son Caleb was out in front of us. And as he's inching along, the rope breaks. And so uh, he falls backward into this like two feet deep pond and he hurts his ankle. And so he's soaking wet and he's injured, but he's a trooper and he he keeps going on and we get like a hundred yards from, from, from the spot where I proposed to Trish and I'm so excited, but, but half the kids don't want to go any further and there are many tears uh, being shed. And so, so as, as wonderful as I thought this journey was going to be, and it was still wonderful, it was much harder than I anticipated. You know, throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus uh, gives this single command uh, to people over and over again, and he gives it to us as well. And the single command is this. If you see on the slide, he says, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. And the question is, what is it like to follow Jesus? I mean, is it just, you know, uh, butterflies and giggles and euphoria all the time? Um, well, if you have followed Jesus for, thank you for the laugh. Uh, if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, you know 
that it is not always euphoric, but sometimes it is very hard. And our case study today of that is John the Baptist. And so if you would, uh, please open up to Mark chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you will absolutely need it. There is a red Bible in the seat in front of you. There should be. If there's not, there are some red Bibles in the back that uh, feel free to get up and go get them. It's completely fine. You can go grab a Bible. You will absolutely need a Bible today. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Please take it with you. We love to give them away. So, so the question we're looking at today is what, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Uh, not from a distance, but to follow Jesus closely, to obey his commands, to live life as he would call us to live. What would we expect if we follow Jesus closely? Now, whenever you study the Bible, the context is always extremely important. What comes before and after the passage is always very important, but today, maybe even more so. And so I wanna just first pre preface with sharing you the, the, the context of this passage. So right before the passage that it, we're gonna preach on today, um, you have Jesus sending out the, the, the 12 apostles and he's sending them out and he's saying, hey, go proclaim the gospel, call people to repentance. And guess what? You get to heal people and you get to drive out demons. I mean, could you imagine if I was just like, all right, this section over here, this week, you get to heal people and drive out demons. Wouldn't that be amazing? And you get to preach repentance and the gospel and people are gonna believe and come alive to the kingdom of God. I mean, that would be so amazing if you had that opportunity. And so we get to the verse just before today's passage in verse 13, and it says this, and they, the apostles, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This was a celebration. It was euphoric. It was wonderful. We're following Jesus and people are being healed. Demons are being driven out. People are repenting and trusting in Christ for their salvation. It is amazing. And then we get to the verse right after our passage today, which is verse 30. And it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Again, they went out and had this extremely fruitful, wonderful, joyful ministry, and they're celebrating it. And it is wonderful. But is that what following Jesus is always like? Again, of course, we know it's not. John the Baptist, if you remember, was a faithful follower of God. And when we first are introduced to John the Baptist, his ministry is gangbusters. I mean, he is, everybody knows him within 100 square miles of, of where he's doing. People are coming, they're repenting, they are being baptized. Things are going amazing. It is fruitful. He is famous. But what we find out is that his faithfulness is also fatal. And that's what we're gonna look at today in verses 14 through 29. So look with me, Mark chapter six, verse 14 through 29. This is God's word. King Herod heard of it, that's all the miracles that are happening, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Okay, now we get the backstory to this comment. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, 
because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, that's John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe when he heard him. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Lord, your call rings throughout history. Follow me. And I know that I often think that following you should be nothing but ease. That we should have a cushy Christianity. And yet, God, your word tells us something very different. And so, God, help us as we consider this call to follow you that it is costly, that it is painful, that it is sometimes offensive, but help us to be faithful to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, question is, what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? What should we expect? Much like the apostles, John had seen many miraculous things happen because of his faithfulness to God, but now, it was going to get difficult. Faithfully following Jesus can often be unpopular, it can be offensive, and it can even be deadly. What it is like to follow Jesus, we see here even in the story of John the Baptist. And there are three experiences of John that we too will share if we faithfully follow Jesus. And I wanna focus on those three experiences. The first experience, if we faithfully follow Jesus, it will be conflicting with this world. It will be conflicting with this world. Before we dive back into verse 17, I briefly wanna give you uh, a description of the main characters in this story. So first we have John the Baptist again. Uh, he made the way of Jesus, called people to repentance, and they did, it was a glorious ministry. But he was also the cousin of Jesus. Um, but as you could tell, he was a prophet, and he would proclaim the truth to people. And then we have Herod Antipas, 
or Atapas. And he is the tetriarch of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to 39 AD. He was a Roman official who had a lot of authority over his jurisdiction, but also pretty much did the bidding of Caesar. Uh, what we find out is that Herod actually kicked his wife to the side so that he could marry his brother's wife. And her name is Herodias, which gets confusing because his name's Herod and her name's Herodias. It's very close. But she is, Herodias is the former wife of Philip, and she left her husband uh, to be married to Herod Antipas. And so those are the major characters in the story. So let's look again at verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. What does it mean when John says, it is not law for you, for you to have your brother's wife? Well, you can actually look back in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, and there is a law there that says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And so this is God's law. This is the Old Testament law. It's found in multiple places in the Old Testament. But basically, you shouldn't steal your brother's wife. Seems like a pretty good law, right? But here's the thing that's so interesting is that uh, John the Baptist doesn't perceive this law, this sexual ethic, to only pertain to the people of God. He assumes that it pertains to everyone. You see, and this is one of the interesting things that we are engaging in our culture today, is that people are basically saying, hey, you do you. What is good for you is good for you. What is good for me is good for me in terms of my sexual ethic. Please don't disturb me. Please don't confront me. Please don't say anything that I'm doing is wrong. And yet here in this passage, John is convinced that God's law is not only applicable to people who follow the Lord, it is applicable to all people. And so when we break those laws, we are sinning against God. And so John goes to confront Herod on his sexual ethic. He goes to confront John on his adultery. It's not only God's law for God's people, it's God's law for all people. And so make no mistake, John the Baptist is telling Herod that his sexual ethics are sinful and destructive and wrong because they are not consistent with God's sexual ethics. I don't think this will come as a surprise to most of you in this room, but the ways of God are in conflict, in conflict with the ways of this world. The biblical sexual ethic is offensive to the sexual ethics of this world. The sexual ethic of this world says that you can do whatever you want, that you should just follow your heart no matter what it tells you to do. And you can sleep with whomever you want, whenever you want, as long as they are consenting. But a biblical sexual ethic says that sex is a gift from God that is to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. These two sexual ethics are in conflict with one another. And if you hold a biblical God-given sexual ethic, you will most likely be perceived as judgmental, intolerant, and even hateful. But this should not surprise us. In James chapter four, verse four, it says this. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
James 4.4 says that the world is at enmity with God. And if you choose to be a friend of God, you will be at enmity with the world. And if you choose to be a friend of the world, you will be an enemy of God. This means you cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus and be like everyone else. Because many will see you as their enemy. They will not see you as their friend. If you faithfully follow Jesus, do not be surprised if your sexual ethic is unpopular because God's ways are not the ways of the world. When it comes to sexuality, the world preaches a gospel of tolerance and inclusion and celebration to every type of sexual lust and desire and perversion. But ironically, the world is intolerant of intolerant people. The world is not inclusive of non-inclusive people. The world does not celebrate people who do not celebrate the sexual perversion of the world. Friends, you cannot faithfully follow Jesus and not be in conflict with the ways of the world, especially when it comes to sexual ethic. You know, in the past few years, uh, there have been many people that I've had many conversations with uh, who have attended our church and they have said something along these lines. I don't agree with the church's stance on homosexuality, or I don't agree with the, the church's stance on, um, uh, on, on abstinence until marriage, or I don't agree with the church's stance on adultery. And, and, and I'll just say, you know what? Who cares what the church's stance is? What does the Bible say? What does God say about these things? Because it's really, that's what matters, isn't it? And so it always leads to this conversation of how do we decide what is true? What is authoritative when it comes to a sexual ethic? Is it our hearts, which the Bible says are deceptively wicked? Is it the world, which is always changing around us? Or is it God himself, the creator of sexuality? Is he the one who has authority over a healthy sexual ethic, a biblical sexual ethic? Again, Christians, I don't have to tell you, we live in a sexually confused culture and we must engage the world compassionately, winsomely, wisely, lovingly, graciously, and patiently, but without compromise. And we must not be surprised when the word of God conflicts with the world around us. In fact, if we faithfully follow Jesus, we must be in humble conflict with the ways of the world all the time for the sake of the world and for the glory of God. And so first we see here that faithfully following Jesus is conflicting with the world around us. But secondly, is compelling to the world. This is so fascinating. Uh, John the Baptist calls out King Herod's sin and calls him to repentance. And Herod is so offended by this that he puts John in prison. And after Herod... Uh, after Herod's hand is forced to put John to death, we see that Herod is actually haunted uh, by his guilt over putting John to death. Look at verse 14 through 16 with me. It says, King Herod heard of it, all the miracles that were going on, for Jesus' name had become known. And then people are trying to figure out who is Jesus. It says, some said, Jesus is John the Baptist, has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. They're trying to figure out who is this man, Jesus? And then I love Herod, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, <laughs> John whom I beheaded has been raised. John is living with a superstitious, guilty conscience because, sorry, Herod is living with a superstitious, guilty conscience because Herod knows 
that John was a good man, that John was a righteous man. And Herod knows even deep down inside of him that John was right, that he was in sin in his relationship with Herodias. And so now Herod is convinced that John the Baptist has come back from the dead to seek vengeance upon him. Look at verse 19 and 20 with me. It says, and Herodias, that's the the woman, had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death. She was upset because he was exposing her sin to the world and she didn't like that. Most of us don't like that. It says, but she could not put him to death for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he, Herod, kept John the Baptist safe. This is so fascinating. So you have Herod that has platoons of soldiers at his disposal, and yet he is afraid of John the Baptist, a guy who eats locusts. This is the guy that he's afraid of because he knows that John the Baptist is a righteous man. He is a holy man. As a matter of fact, it means he is an innocent man. John the Baptist is innocent, and Herod knows it. And Herod knows deep down inside that John the Baptist is right, that what he is doing is wrong. And so he puts him in prison, but he decides not to kill him. And then as we read on in verse 20, and this is so fascinating, it says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed. There's this inner turmoil, and yet he heard him gladly. That is with pleasure or with sweetness. He hears John's teaching. And so evidently when John was in prison, Herod would go down and would talk to John and hear John teach. And there was something about the teaching of John that was sweet to his soul, that was captivating, that was compelling for him. And that's why he grieved when his hand was forced and he beheaded John. You see, here's the thing, the Christian sexual ethic and the moral laws of Christianity are not only true, they are actually beautiful. And so the Christian sexual ethic is simultaneously, this is so important here, they are simultaneously offensive to the world and compelling to the world. The Christian sexual ethic is simultaneously offensive to the world and compelling to the world. If you were uh, here a few months ago when we did membership vows and you're here at the second service, uh, you heard Max share his testimony and he gave me permission to share it again today. But Max shared about how when he was in college, he majored in two things. Do you remember? He majored in girls and he majored in booze. And he said he was a very good student in those two degrees. And so uh, Max shared this, but he was also very empty in college, pursuing these things, the pleasures of the world. And so finally, he surrendered his life to Christ. And because women and his relationships with women had been so toxic for so many years, he committed to the Lord that he would not tell a woman that he loves her until he proposed to her. And he would not kiss a girl until they were married. And so Max shared that. And if you were here, you may remember the congregation applauded and celebrated because that was a wonderful thing to hear. But but here's the most interesting part of that story that you do not know. Not only is that story compelling to the church, but it's actually compelling to the world. You see, Max works at a camp and he is surrounded by non-Christians in high school, in college. He has non-Christians that are all around him. And he has shared this story with them. And they will on, on multiple occasions say, Max, can you tell us that story again? Can you tell us again about how you and Katie met and, and, and what you guys did until you got engaged and what you, what you did and didn't do until you got married? And they want Max to tell this story because it is so beautiful to them. It is almost like a fairy tale. You see, 
a biblical sexual ethic is both offensive to the world and attractive at the exact same time. Because all of us know deep inside this is the way it's supposed to be. To those who hold to the ways of the world, again, a biblical sexual ethic is simultaneously bitter and beautiful. It is offensive and attractive. It is infuriating and compelling. And so faithfully following Jesus will lead to conflict in this world because the ways of the world are not the ways of God, but it will also simultaneously be compelling to this world because God's ways are the most beautiful ways, the most wonderful ways. Finally, faithfully following Jesus is costly in this world. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So just picture this scene. Uh, you had the most powerful men in the region all gathered together in one room. They've had too much to eat. They've had too much to drink. And they call in the girl. And the girl that comes in is, uh, is Herod's wife's daughter, all right? It's his stepdaughter that calls her in. She comes in, scantily dressed, does a dance for the men in the room, okay? It, nothing new under the sun, right? You, you have these men treating this woman, object, objectifying her, treating her like a piece of meat, and she is using her sexuality uh, to enforce power over the most powerful man, men in the region, Okay? It goes on, verse 22 continues and it says, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom, which is a saying of the day. But you see here how much power this sexuality has, not only over Herod, but over all of these men in this room. Verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, which is Herod's wife, Herodias, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25. And she, Herodias' daughter, by the way, this is a, a young girl, probably between 12 and 16, came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You know, I know many of you here today are concerned with political corruption in our country and probably for very good reasons, but have you ever seen something like this? In which the, the, the teenage daughter of, of the leader's wife comes in, uh, does this dancing, that I don't wanna describe much more than that, and the men, because of this, promise her anything she wants and what she wants is to behead Billy Graham, basically. And they say, yes, we will do that. That's how powerful sexual ethics are, that they overcome even the most powerful men in the world. This is so messed up. This is one of those stories where you just hope it's not true, where you hope, okay, maybe they behead John the Baptist, but then, ha-ha, he comes back to life, right? And 
but he doesn't, at least not in this world. Again, before this passage, we shared about how, how they went and they healed people and cast out demons and they were celebrating. It was so euphoric to follow Jesus. But sometimes, sometimes following Jesus will cost you your head. Friends, faithfully following Jesus is costly. And while following Jesus may not cost you your head, more than any time in my lifetime, if you follow a biblical Christian ethic, it might cost you your job. It might cost you friendships. It might cost you a promotion. It might cost you your reputation. It might even cost you a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It may even cost you a husband or a wife. Faithfully following Jesus may not cost you your head, but make no mistake, it is still costly today. Jesus says, John was the greatest man born of a woman. Following the call of Christ cost John his head. Why would we think that it would cost us nothing at all? This leads us to a question that I think is very important. If faithfully following Jesus is so costly, so much so that it could even cost us our life, why would we possibly follow Jesus? Well, we look in Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, and it's, it gives a little extra detail that we don't have in the gospel account of Mark. And it says this, and his disciples, talking about John the Baptist's disciples, came and took the body of John the Baptist and buried it. And then we don't have this in Mark, but it says, and they went and told Jesus. I can't help but wonder if when Jesus heard about John's fate, if it made Jesus think about his own fate. You know, no one lived more faithfully for God than Jesus himself. And because of his faithfulness, Jesus was in conflict with the world all of the time. But his life and his teaching was so beautiful and wonderful that he was so compelling that thousands came and gathered and followed him. It's amazing the parallels between Jesus and John's death. Both John and Jesus were executed by a political tyrant who succumbed to peer pressure of those around him. Both John and Jesus were declared innocent and righteous and yet imprisoned and sentenced to death. But here's the thing. John died because of the sexual sin of others. But Jesus died for our sexual sin. John died because of his righteousness. Jesus died because of our unrighteousness. Why would you faithfully follow Jesus? Faithfully following Jesus might cost you something, but you cost Jesus everything, and you are worth it. Jesus went to the cross and died for your sin because he wanted you. It cost him everything, and it was his joy to have you. How much more would it be for us to have the joy of faithfully following Jesus? Let me, let me end with this. Um, there are three ways to respond to this sermon uh, and to God's sexual ethic. One is you could be like Herodias, right? And you could say, you know what? I want nothing to do with this God. I don't want anything to do with this sexual ethic. I don't want anything to do with these people. And you will leave the church and you will never come back. And that makes my heart so sad uh, because God's ways are the best ways, they're the most wonderful ways, they are the most beautiful ways. And so you could respond like Herodias, 
Or you could respond like Herod and you could say, oh, you know, that's very interesting. I'm intrigued by this. It seems beautiful and sweet, but you change nothing about your life. The sexual sin you were in last week, you are going to plan on continuing in in the week that is to come. And so you could be like Herodias. You could be like Herod. Or you could be like the dozens of saints that came before them. You could be like Abraham and King David and the woman at the well and Mary Magdalene and, and all the others from the Old Testament that were so very sexually broken. You see, all of us here, all of us are sexually broken. And if you're kids, you're gonna grow up and you will have sexual brokenness. The difference between us and the world is not sexual brokenness. The difference between us and the world is repentance. That we repent and say, God, your ways are so much better than the ways of the world. Your ways are so much better than my ways. A great example of this is King David. He was very sexually broken in all sorts of ways. He committed adultery, he, he murdered, he, he was a polygamist. He had all sorts of sexual brokenness. And yet he was known as a man after God's own heart. Why? Not because he was sexually pure, but because he was repentant. And he believed that God's sexual ethic was sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. You may be here indulging in sexual sin, torn between two worlds. You want the immediate pleasure, but you also see the beauty of what the Bible has to say. Herod was mastered by his sexuality. Maybe you are as well. But I have good news. Jesus provides cleansing from sexual sin. Jesus provides forgiveness from sexual sin. And Jesus even provides freedom from sexual sin. If you are here and you say, man, I want to live more for God and my sexuality, we are here to help you. We have purity groups that meet. We have a group for folks who wrestle with same-sex attraction and want to be faithful to the Lord. And so if you want help in these areas, please reach out to me, another pastor, someone that you trust and say, I need help. I need help because I want to do things God's ways because God's ways are better than my ways. Finally, I just want to address the teenagers in this room who are already feeling extremely awkward at this point in time, just to get a little bit more awkward. As you grow up, you will constantly encounter two sexual ethics. One will be from the world and one will be from God. The sexual ethic of the world says, hey, just follow your heart. Just, just go wherever you feel like you should go. And then there is the sexual ethic of God, which says sex is to be reserved between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Does the sexual ethic of the world provide pleasure? Absolutely. But I could parade before you, because I get to hear people's stories, I could parade before you person after person after person in our congregation that is sitting around you who would say, I followed the sexual ethics of the world and it left me empty and it left me barren. It sucked the life out of me. It dehumanized me. But I can also bring up here person after person in our congregation who says, but then I trusted in Jesus. And by his blood, I was cleansed. And although I still struggle with my sexual brokenness, he has empowered me to gain more and more victory in my life. I am forgiven, not forsaken. And I am free by the power of Jesus. And so what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? Well, it means to live like Jesus. And sometimes it is fruitful and spectacular and joyful and wonderful, but many times it is conflicting with the world while simultaneously compelling to this world. And many times it is costly in this world. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a heavy passage. It's a heavy teaching, a heavy sermon, but one that we need so desperately because we live in a world where sexuality is just going crazy. And so God, uh, we know that you have certain commands when it comes to our sexuality that are not popular with the world. Many times they aren't even popular with us because we want to go our own way. And yet God, you know better than us. And so Lord, pray that within us, within our congregation, within our hearts, that you would stir repentance that we would come to you, that we would once again experience the cleansing blood of Jesus, but we would go further than that and that we would find someone to help us to to lead a godly life, to be a person of righteousness like John the Baptist was and to lovingly, winsomely, generously, patiently engage the world with your perfect law, which is a gift of grace from a father who loves us and cares for us and wants the best for us. Lord, I pray if there's any here who are just overwhelmed with shame from something they've done this past week or or earlier in their life, Lord God, Lord, just that they would experience the blessing of your redemption, that they would experience the forgiveness of your sins, that they would know that they are cleansed by the blood of your son if they trust in him, and that they would walk out of this sanctuary clean people and free people but also people committed to living life the way you have called us to do so for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.